This is the Cashflow Digest. My name is Matt Faircloth and me and the DeRosa team are here for you guys on a weekly basis video and broadcast recording. This is also live on our Facebook group, DeRosa Insiders. We're going to be talking about all things real estate and all things cash flow because our company is dedicated to transforming lives through real estate and cash flow can do that. We're going to be talking about things that are affecting the real estate industry, news in the real estate investing world. And we're also going to be bringing on guests that are crushing it in the cash flow sector of real estate investing. If you guys want to join and watch the show live, please go to Facebook and look up DeRosa Insiders and join that Facebook group where we record this show every Friday at noon Eastern. Hope to see you guys there. What is happening, DeRosa Insiders? It's Matt Faircloth. Welcome to the Cashflow Digest. Our company is the DeRosa Group, dedicated to transforming lives through real estate. We make things better, whether that's a rental property, whether that's someone who invests with us, whether that's someone who works with us because they're working with a company that's dedicated to transforming lives through real estate. If you want to learn how to do what we do as a multifamily operator, we are committed to teaching how to do things in a transforming lives through real estate way. So if you're looking to leave an impact, why you also make money, make money while you make a difference, so to speak. We can help you. What you want to do is go to derosagroup.com forward slash education, and you can hear more about all the education offerings that we offer people. This program is on Spotify. If you guys are watching on Spotify, thank you. Please take a minute real quick and leave this show a positive review on Spotify. And if you are lucky enough to be watching this program on our Facebook community, our free Facebook community, how much free community called DeRosa Insiders on Facebook, then I'm super grateful for you guys. And if you guys aren't doing that, then go to Facebook right now and join DeRosa Insiders because that's a channel where you guys can ask us questions live on this program, which goes live every Friday at noon Eastern. Ask us questions and interact with us and talk to me and my and our awesome guests that we have today. And you can also ask questions about things that we are up to in the real estate world. We did a live underwriting on the DeRosa Insiders channel. Lots of people loved it. Lots of people had great comments. We're gonna be doing other live video streams, broadcasting all kinds of cool stuff on DeRosa Insiders. Go to Facebook, go to DeRosa Insiders, and you guys can join our awesome community of thousands of people that are on there talking real estate investing on a daily basis. Today, guys, I want to hop into something that's an interesting thing that's changing in the real estate world. And some folks viewed this to be static thing, and it's never going to change because it's always been the way that we've done it. And that is the world of real estate commissions. And real estate commissions are changing very quickly. It's just becoming more of an open world thanks to organizations like everything from EXP Realty, Redfin, or organizations that allow you to for sale by owner, list by yourself. So the realtor world is changing. And to, to talk about the changing realtor world and this interesting class action lawsuit that just happened in the state of Missouri, we're bringing in our, our good friend here at the Rosa, my man, Vinny Celeste, our sales director. Vinny, how are you today? Good, good. Happy Friday. How are you? Happy Friday to you. So what's interesting, Vinny, is that this class action lawsuit, they didn't really settle it. They had a judgment come down in Missouri. It is absolutely 10X going to appeal. They're going to keep that going because you're talking about the NAR, the National Association of Realtors, which is arguably the largest lobby in the country. And there's a reason why they're large. It's because there's a lot of money involved in transacting real estate, right? And the National Association of Realtors is an organization that is there to protect and defend residential housing, the meaning places where people live. This conversation about real estate commissions did not affect the commercial world because if I go and buy a commercial property, an apartment building, I'm not dealing with a realtor, right? I'm dealing with a real estate broker. There's a difference between a realtor and a real estate broker. I think this actually goes to a kind of a side conversation, which is jurisdiction and laws change in, in depending on where you're investing and where you're looking to buy property. Because actually in North Carolina, there isn't a, a distinction between brokers and realtors, actually. It's, it's important to know that when you're working with someone, it, it, just like any industry, 
there are good real estate brokers and realtors, and there are maybe people who are less helpful. Right? So you definitely want to spend some time to get to know someone. By the way, a realtor, all that means is that you're a member of the National Association of Realtors and you've paid your dues. Identify myself as a realtor. It's a different conversation than saying I'm a real estate broker. What, what really all this goes back to is organizations somewhat price fixing on real estate commissions. When you go and sell real estate on behalf of another person, you're doing it through the benefit of a real estate license, right? Because I can certainly sell my own home. I can put a sign out for my own home and say, I'm selling my house. Now, if Vinny put a sign in front of my house and said, I'm selling Matt's house. The law says that Vinny has to either have ownership interest in my house, or he has to have a real estate license to transact real estate on behalf of another person because he gets to, he can negotiate to get a fee for doing that. It's a free economy, right? And that fee is typically called a commission and it's based on the purchase price of my house. If I'm selling my house for a half million dollars, then he can charge a percent of that sell price. And the view is that from a selling perspective, the more money he gets from my house, the more money he makes. So it's a win-win type of thing, right? But Vinny, talk me through the commission conversation because you are a licensed agent, right? Okay. And so you've dealt in the commission world a lot more than I have. So tell me your thoughts on this article and on just the changing world about real estate commissions. Yeah, I think it's part of a larger conversation discourse that we're seeing around the sediment of the requirement to work with the realtor, right? Or mm -hmm. a broker, depending on where you're at. And the conversation goes back to what is the value that broker is providing? And so the way the commissions work, I, for those who aren't familiar, when you go to sell someone's asset, piece of real estate, what, what you'll put in place is a listing agreement. Mm -hmm. Listing agreement is where you'll negotiate the commission. And so a lot of people will say that, oh, the seller pays buyer agent commission. But just like anything else, nothing comes free. And really <laughs> what's happening is you're raising the price of the real estate to, to compensate the, the agent. So Matt, in regards to this class asset action lawsuit, and folks, I, I think really what people are upset about is that it's not always clear that you're in a negotiation, right? When you start a baseball mm. game, a football game, basketball game, a ref blows a whistle and you know that you're playing. And I, I don't think it's always clear. And it's, it's really important that folks watching know that you have the ability to negotiate these commissions on your listing agreement. And, and what you'll find in this, in this article that people are upset about is brokers would use language like the typical commission is 6%, typical commissions, five and a half percent X, Y, Z. It's there. Whether that's true or not is besides the point that the broker should not be telling you that you are negotiating a free market economy service. The service that they're providing you is all the work necessary to, to market your asset and get you a good sale mm -hmm. and there's absolute value and they deserve to be paid in doing that. But just know that you are negotiating. And I think what's upsetting people is that mm -hmm. the, the value that the broker is providing is being diminished by technology, but people feel that while the broker's responsibilities are being you know lessened and lessened because yeah. of technology and all the stuff that you're able to do. No, they're not communicating effectively that we should negotiate together, which a fair price of this. Yeah. yeah. Let's face it, Vin, like the last say seven, eight years of selling real estate, it's gotten a lot easier than what I can remember back in 2008, nine, 10, when the house would go on the market, it was standard for that house to sit there for 45 to 60 days before you even got an offer, multiple open houses, sit there in market for a while. Right. There was a lot of effort on the broker side. The last seven to eight years, real estate's been so hot, partly because of interest rates have been so low that a realtor got a listing on a house was guaranteed at least to get an offer in, in a week or so, and perhaps even to go to multiple offers if the house is in a hot market and if it was appropriately priced, right? So the amount of work that brokers had to make and still make their four, five, 6% commission, the work to compensation ratio has gone way, way, way down. The amount of work for the amount of, the amount of money that, are, that a typical real estate agent makes. That's my outside looking in view of this thing. And maybe that's why there's been items like class action lawsuits by people saying, hey, wait a minute, 
why should the sell price of my house have anything to do with how much money you make for pretty much putting it online and then, you know, sitting and waiting for an offer, right? right. And as you said, Vinny, the brokers are taking themselves out of more of the risk-based conversations like, you know, should we negotiate? Should we offer up? Should we offer down? They're really just putting themselves in the middle as a neutral party. And so it goes to the question of well, what are you really doing? Well, right. how are you helping me? What, what value are we adding to this conversation? Right. I, I just see in the space feel like we've created this issue that only brokers and, and realtors can solve. And it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy that just validates the existence. And so what, it, what you'll find is that this article specifically calls out buyer agents. And what, what a lot of folks don't realize is, you know, that listing agreement I was talking about before, you know, people might say it's 5%, 6% often. Well, half of that goes to the buyer agent and yep. people are specifically targeting the buyer agents. Well, and I can tell you from buying my own assets, I went on Zillow. I, you know, found the one I, I went to my broker, asked, asked to show it. And then when I asked my broker, what was a fair price to offer? I got no advice. Right. And so Matt, I think we should spend some time talking uh, to folks about how to find the right broker for them and yeah. like, what a broker is supposed to do and help with. But that's specifically what folks are calling out. That buyer agent is still going to get two and a half to 3%, mm -hmm. even though you picked the property, you negotiated the deal. There's absolute value in, in them helping you through the buying process. All right, we got to get pre-approved now. We have to fill out this contract and this is what this line means in it. There's value in them. They should be compensated. But mm -hmm. a, a lot of folks are feeling like, hey, I picked the house. I negotiated the price and you, you just made 15 grand. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, I, I listed a house that I that I, that was a fix and flip I did years ago. And the buyer that ended up buying the house told me, well, I had to work with this realtor because it's the only way I could see the house. But the buy, that buyer had found right. the house on Trulia, right? And said, I want to buy that house right there but wasn't able to get a showing. It was unbeknownst to me. I mean, I would, have, I would have been shown it to him, right? But he wasn't able to get a showing on the house without reaching out to a realtor through Trulia. So he ended up having to have this middle person get involved in the transaction. So yeah, Vin, give me your thoughts on how to select the right agent. And then I'm going to give Vinny the blank slate here. And you tell me what the perfect world would look like in broker, buyer, broker. Like just you know, give me the perfect realtor world on residential housing. Thanks for the warning there, by the way. I'll be thinking I want you to think of that. So I'll give you a heads up. <laughs> yeah. I, I got my thoughts yeah. here, but I want to hear yeah. what you see first. No, cool. So anyone listening to this is probably listening because we're all interested in investing in real estate. And it's really important to know that there are very investor-friendly brokers and realtors, and there are people who maybe aren't that. And so the, the situation I described with my personal experience buying a house, I had no advice on where were the good markets. I had no advice on, you know, what I should, what I should, what were a good offering price and that sort of thing. Your broker and realtor, it's important to know that it's you, you determine what the offer price is. You determine what you're negotiating is but it, that person should act as counsel. So my first bit of advice is make sure you're finding an investor-friendly agent, someone who buys real estate investments and is looking for value. Because just like we were saying that, hey, you're gonna find your asset on, on realtor.com, you're, you're finding it yourself. Well, I'll tell you what, a good broker can see certain things and not everyone can see. So a good broker could go out there and go through the pictures and see, hey, actually, if we knock down this wall, you might have a mom and daughter in, in, in law suite you can build out here. Right? you have an unfinished basement things like that and things you know we could train ourselves on too so get an investor friendly agent someone who's familiar with that your investor friendly agent will also know more about financing find finance, headlines every day now financing changes all the time you're as someone who's doing real estate deals all the time and looking at, at it themselves will be just party to it and will know different financing options that can be you know really helpful to you this is where a good agent adds value you know everything i've just said just there that person providing that value could save you a lot of money and they, they deserve to be compensated for that. Love that. Love that. Okay. Yeah. So Ben, uh, transitioning here, right? What is your ideal world on the residential home sales and home buying side? 
and I'll close it down with my final thoughts on what I think the world ought to look like in that space. So go. Yeah, I got you there. So the ideal world for me is one where everyone's informed and has the option. Cause I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about where we've all seen on Zillow. If you want to request a tour, they actually, what they're going to do is connect you with a realtor who then gets, gets in and that, that, that person by doing no advertising, you know, not really getting is going to get three, you know, two and a half to 3% of that transaction. So for me, what we should be able to do is provide an avenue so that, hey, if you want the help through the, the buying process, the legal, the, the contracts and the, the, the finances, you should be able to get yourself a buyer's broker. But also, Matt, someone like you, someone like me will, wants to invest in, in a market we're not licensed in or something like that. I, I should be able to at least connect with a selling agent. So that, that would be my actual solution. I provide you the ability to connect with the selling agent. You can still create that barrier mm. so that you're not bugging the sellers all the time but at least let you connect with the seller agent so that you, you can go direct to the seller with your offers. And there, you know that there's negotiating power when you're going to direct to the seller agent because there's something called due agency, which would be a whole other podcast. But you know they already have the tools to find the assets. We need to provide them the tools to actually do the transaction and yep. that would start with connecting them. Love it. Here's Matt's world, right? I think that you've got two different things. You've got a buyer of real estate's world and you've got the seller of real estate's world, right? On the selling side, what do they really need? They really need a good marketing package, like good photos, a good write-up of the house and like a good online presence of the listing. So they make my home air quote show in the best light, right? So on the, on the selling side, what they should be giving is good photos, good, a good write-up. So maybe like some good copywriting, a good photo pack and access to all the online sites, the MLS, Trulia, Zillow, all that stuff, right? Then the second thing that a seller needs is go going back and forth, the contractual stuff in some states, the legal, and in some states, just a little bit of coaching on the negotiation and just making sure that they get a good closing once they're under contract, right? So if there's repair negotiations, almost like a closing concierge to get you from listing your house to the closing table. So someone that's there to whisper some advice in you or that kind of thing. I think both those two things could be a fee-based arrangement. Those two things shouldn't matter on what the price of your house sells for, period. A service the, fee. Yeah, yeah that is a service fee. On the right. buying side, that is a bit of a commission and maybe the buyer should be writing a bit of a check and that's what some of that lawsuit was about, was the buyer having to write a bit of a check to the buyer's broker because the buying side is someone that's a little different arrangement. What they're there to do is to A, convince you, like you should look at this town. Here's the neighborhoods I like. They're building a Wegmans around there. They're really there for market knowledge. And if I'm moving to Topeka, Kansas and I need someone to help me find a home in Topeka, Kansas, a local, a good local buyer's rep is going to be my leg in to that community, that market. What do you want? You want a five bedroom, two bath? How many kids you got? This, this, let me help you find something. What kind of, what, what do you like to do for fun? Let me go, okay, there's a park over there. Let me get you near that park, that kind of thing. And then that buyer's rep would then help them negotiate on the price of the house, help them through the process. Also, they don't make anything unless that person buys something. So maybe it's worth the buyer writing a check to kind of retain that buyer's rep going in because a lot of what a lot of buyers will do Vinny is they'll go and work with six seven buyers reps all at once and then that's end up like kind of you know ticking off five people and one person makes a commission right because it's very common for buyers to work with multiple people i think that the buyer should have to write a small maybe refundable fee to the buyer's rep to engage them as a committed buyer's representative and then that buyer's rep probably should get a commission based on the purchase price of the house, you know, a hunter slash success fee, right? And maybe it is paid on the set, paid as a percentage of the purchase price of the house. So I would separate these two roles and the, and the job descriptions for the buyer of real estate and the, and the seller of real estate agency. That's, that's what I would do. 
Yeah. Yeah. And there, there are separations now, but you know, of course there, there is definitely a commingling there. I think that if the industry wants to survive and not get digitized through organizations like Trulia and Zillow and, and let the property owners pretty much take the whole enchilada back as like from this NAR lawsuit, but let's leave it here. The real estate industry is due for a overhaul and organizations like ones that I know you're involved in like EXP are the very beginning of the overhaul of the real estate industry. And I think that what's what I know is going to happen is the real estate brokerage industry is going to change a lot in the next couple of years. Thanks to this lawsuit, thanks to organizations like Trulia, Zillow, and a dare I say EXP as well, are going to be changing this, this industry quite a bit over the next couple of years. Vin, I'm, I'm going I'm to let you jump. Love to hear what you guys have to say as in our community on what you guys think on the changing world about real estate commissions. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me on. It's interesting stuff. Now I'm going to transition. We've got a great guest coming on today. We're going to be talking about some interesting things, maybe talk about real estate commissions, but also really get to talking about rising real estate investing, house hacks, all kinds of really cool stuff. And also we're going to talk a little bit about social media. So guys, I had the pleasure of meeting this individual at BPCon, but also we met on social earlier. Antonio Cuccinello, how are you today? Great to see you. Good to see you again. How are you? Thanks for having me, Matt. I'm doing well. Let me just tell our audience here how you and I met originally on social, and then we got to meet, hang a little bit at the BPCon, and then the crazy scurry of you and I hanging out with 2,600 of our best friends, right, at BPCon. If you want to tell the story, it was through the post that you did involving my book, but if you want to tell that story, and then you and I got to chat a little bit, and here we are. So go ahead. Yeah, I genuinely read your book three, four years ago, maybe now. I got it up here on the shelf along with your other books. And yeah. I, I made a video about top five books I recommend for beginner real estate investors. And that was one of them. And so, you know, I was just genuinely sharing the information that yeah. I believed in. And uh, you saw my post because I guess I got a decent following. And then you're like, hey, let's talk. Yeah. Well, what I want to just convey to the audience here, it's just a level of gratitude that you put out there for, hey, this book's awesome. And you really believed it, right? It's a book that it's my hope that it made some sort of a difference in your real estate investing career, right? And and you weren't just like, hey, you know, here's a book. It's like a book that really of value to you. And you chose to share it with your followers. To me as an author, and to anyone as any type of a, and we're all contributing something to the world, right? So whatever it is that I'm contributing for someone else to notice that and then take that thing and say, hey, I like this community, right? And it weren't, by the way, there wasn't an ask. It was simply, I like these books, right? That's it. That's all the post was. So it's one of these things I hear Gary Vaynerchuk talk about as a jab, right? Mm-hmm. And so it is a, here's a free, here's free value to, to the online community. Here you go, right? And what I want to just remind our audience here of is that it's a great thing to do to just offer up something that's free to your community, but also if you can tag someone else that you're looking to either become friends with or that you just really respect or whatever it is in the world, it's a great way to show gratitude to them. And if, they, if they're you know, smart enough, they're going to realize, hey, that person did a no ask promote of a thing that I did. And I was very grateful to see that. So for those of you guys watching, if there's someone you respect in whatever industry you're in or whatever world you're in, give them a no ask shout out on your social community. I don't care if you have two followers or thousands and thousands of followers like Antonio does, right? It doesn't matter. Just give them a no ask, no, not looking for kickbacks. Believe it or not, if you guys buy raising private capital online, he doesn't make any money at all. <laughs> you know, There's no ask he had of that. It's just, he's promoting something. He's just giving back. And the more you guys give back, the more you're going to get respect and make real friends in the industry. And I actually hold Antonio in a lot of respect now because of that post that he did, because I see he's a giver and I love hanging out with givers. So I said, Antonio, thank you for doing that. Let's get back into your story. So you're a real estate investor, right? Mm -hmm. Tell me like your origin story. How'd you get into the real estate investing world? How long you been doing it? Yeah, I 
I graduated college in 2015 as a software engineer and I got my first job. I just thought that that was going to be like my path is I was always told like, you know, get a job, whatever. I, I'm, I'm Italian. My parents born in Italy. So very strict Italian culture. Oh, parents. The only options. I, yeah. The only options I had were doctor, engineer, lawyer. So I chose engineer. I've, I've had people say that, uh, that it wasn't Italian. I think the, the guy was Asian, but he said that the options when you grow up in an Asian family are doctor, lawyer, failure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a failure but, is definitely one of them. I, yeah, I no, that's it. That's the third option. Which one did you pick? I picked software engineer, and I went to TCNJ, so I was right around the corner from, I guess, where you're at. And yeah, I'm down so Yeah, I started working in Princeton, got my first job, and <clears throat> day one of my first job, I was like. I got to do this for the rest of my life. I had an internship, but the internship was like in a limited time frame. There was a set start and a set end. Whereas when I got at the desk, I was like, there's no end to this. Right. There's no end in sight. 40 years. Yeah. That doesn't feel doable. Like yeah, I, I need something this. to, I need something to like a goal to strive towards. So yeah. I went home that day. I was texting my friend about how much I hated this. And he was like, you know, you could like try entrepreneurship. And I had never even heard of the word before, but it turns out that my, my parents had sheltered me so much from like the thought of being a business owner. My dad has his own business. All of my uncles have their own business. They're all like one person or one employee businesses. They're small businesses, but yeah. they all didn't have a nine to five job, but they told me to go get a nine to five job, but it never yeah. clicked in my head. It's funny, Antonio, that the world views a 40 year commitment to a job where you work in, you, you do that. And then you get the gold watch at 65 years old. They view that to be a better stable position, a better level of success than doing what your dad did and owning his own day, right? He's got He's, he's owning his own success. He's his own man. He wins, he wins and loses on his own efforts. Exactly. And yeah, and I yeah. guess some people don't value their own efforts and maybe that's really it. It's a, a thought process of be safe. Like don't, yeah. don't try the hard thing. The hard thing is going out on your own in some respects. And, and in some ways it's easier that day I started looking up different forms of entrepreneurship. I ended up starting an Amazon FBA business while I was reading about real estate investing. How I, many days I, into your job are you doing this? This now? is, this is day, day one, <laughs> like literally the first day. I love this. I love that your first day of work. You're like, okay, I'm out. That's yeah. it. I'm not, I'm, I'm already figuring the way out of this. Life for one goal to become a software engineer. And now I'm changing my goal instantaneously. So you are uh, a quick start if yeah. on, on the Colby analysis where it's like, Oh, this is it. I've made up my mind. I'm not doing this anymore. I will not figure out how to get out. Love it. So uh, I was, I was living in a rental in Ewing. I'm reading these books, um, bigger pockets and, and going on bigger pockets. And I wanted to get started. I had saved like my first 10 K and my landlord emailed us telling us that like our lease was going to be up. So I actually sent him an email. I was like, Hey, I'm interested in buying the house, but he, the landlord was telling me that he wasn't making much money from it. So I was like, Oh, that's too scary. Like I was just so scared of losing money. So I, I stopped that. I started my Amazon FBA business. I lost $21,000 <laughs> and then I took a year off learning new skills and picking up odd jobs. This way I could go back into software engineering and I was like, okay, I'm going to get a stable job. It's going to pay me money. And then I'm going to invest in real estate. Nice. So fast forward, like this is now four years. I'm 26. I moved into New York city, got a nice software engineering job there. And <clears throat> I finally saved up enough cash. But every time I tried to look for a place in New York city, I was scared because everything around me was 700 K you know, 800 K broom closet. Right. Yeah. 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 And I have to house hack that closet and still never do anything. <laughs> with it. So I was like, well, this doesn't make sense. Everyone always talks about investing where you live. And so then I started looking outside of New York and like Newark, Brooklyn, but nothing specific that I could find. Everything was still expensive. And, and it wasn't until I remembered, Oh, 
you know, I went to college in Ewing and I tried to do this there and I looked and so the prices were low. So I started going to Ewing every weekend, looking at properties, analyzing mm -hmm. every single mm -hmm. day. And uh, after putting in like nine offers, I got two accepted, one fell out of a contract. And then my last one, I got uh, accepted and that was my first deal. It was 195K triplex in, in Ewing, New Jersey, fully rented. It was at, it was rented for 2,600 and the numbers worked. Love um, it. What street was it on? Prospect. I remember I, I, at one point I had 115 units in Mercer County. Yeah. So I, I'm very familiar. I used to own on Concord over there by the, by the IHOP. I had five, four units on that block at one point. And we ended, we ended up selling them to Don Winter from DLP Realty. If you've heard oh, of that, really? they're, like a, they're like a machine now. So anyway, that, that's awesome, man. And so tell me a few questions to unpack. Are your mom and dad's head exploding off of their shoulders while this is going on, right? Because this is the folks <laughs> that pushed you and sheltered you from entrepreneurship, even though it's what your dad did. Were their heads exploding when you're running around doing the odd jobs or did they get it or were they completely throwing shade at you the entire time? Yeah, <clears throat> my dad, I, I vividly remember because this is when I started uh, making videos as well. It was like six and a half years ago now. My dad would come down in the middle of me making videos and him <laughs> saying, go get a job. I don't care if you go work at the gas station. Because like in Jersey, you actually can get a job at a gas station. Yeah. And, and he didn't understand that like I was trying to minimize my time at work. So this way I could spend time learning and, and, and hopefully get a better job. What changed his mind was that after the 14 months in between jobs, I slammed down a contract where my salary went up 67% from where it was the year before solely because I took that time off and sure I didn't save money during that time and I was barely surviving but not most people can't go from one job to another in one year without doing something drastic to get that much of a raise and so I was like this is part of my plan you know I'm going to make more money now so you were you were able to upgrade your salary in the software engineer world it sounds like you you know kind of learned how to make more value for yourself as a software engineer and then all of a sudden you're able to like get a job in New York City where my guess is you probably were living way below your means and bankrolled and got your seed capital going right so yeah. what did you what did you do to get that big raise in the software world I I basically uh, studied a whole new section of software engineering it was before I was doing like lower level stuff like you know when you go to an airport and sometimes they have like I know some international airports yeah. have like eye detectors or in uh -huh. your phone you got the eye detector a face a face detector I was working on those technologies those jobs weren't that readily available in New York City and I knew that in order to make more money I had to go to New York City I had to niche down you, you know like Alexa's and Google Assistant's making sure mine didn't go off the, Oh yeah. No, if I, <laughs> I can't say the G word in front of my phone. Cause it'll be like, Oh, what you, you said my name? I got you. So I niched down to that and there wasn't anyone really doing that at the time. And I started making YouTube videos about what I was doing there and make writing blog posts. So we'd spend all day long making a project for a company and then sending it to them via cold email that I found online huh. or LinkedIn or something. And I had like a 10% success rate of getting people to actually answer the email. Cause like I made them so personalized to the person, but also to the company. And I was like, Hey, I think this could solve your problem. Eventually I got one, I got a job at NBC. And so that oh. one, they paid a lot more. It was a, you know, it was a bigger company and allowed me to move to New York city. And, and in New York city, I, I lived with five roommates, which is kind of unheard of. Bedroom, I guess. Right? Yeah, it was, there was only two rooms in the house that had windows. <laughs> the rest did not. And we had cockroaches and mice. So I, I didn't <laughs> go back and do it again. 
but it was a fun experience oh for a little bit everybody should live yeah. like that for a minute or two right so yeah that's that's awesome great great okay so you got a traplex in ewing new jersey you, you've scaled up now take me to today and what you've done up till now you've you've have you scaled that in mercer county and is it like give me your portfolio on where, where we sit today yeah so i i got then two more duplexes which i can tell that story a little bit later because i think you'd like it but then i had seven units in in mercer county and like it got to the point where i was analyzing every on-market property that was a small multifamily in ewing or hamilton and at least the good areas that i would want to invest in and there just wasn't enough supply for me so i was like i need to look outside of my area and so at the time i was talking about on social media and i was like you know it'd be cool i had just moved to texas in early 2021 in Austin, where I'm at now. And I was like, it would be cool if I drove my, I needed my car down in Texas. It'd be cool if I just like went around to all these different markets I wanted to check out and I recorded videos. And so I did a road trip series where I planned up meeting up with agents, looking at properties. And I ended up buying one in Little Rock and one in Akron, in a suburb of Akron, Ohio. And I had another one under contract in Memphis, but that one fell through. So that was challenging because I ended up splitting my focus too much all at once. I had yeah. three properties under contract, three different real estate agents, three different contractors, you know, all that. So then I ended up now focusing more on Akron. And that's where I've spent the last, like, guess, year or so trying to get some small multifamily homes. And so now I have at 18 units hmm. uh, and I have, I, I got a single family in Cape Coral, Florida. So I'm pretty spread thin and I don't want to go any more thin, but I think I find fun in going to new areas, experiencing it, but also like, showing people that it's possible to be done mm-hmm. in multiple areas. It's probably not the best for having deep market knowledge, but it's good for having access to more deals. I was going to say no more road trips for you, but but yeah. how did those videos do where you were hitting the road, shooting videos? Were, were you posting them on YouTube? Uh, I did I did some YouTube, but it was primarily TikTok and Instagram. And I, did, I went live a lot on TikTok while I was in the areas that I was in. That's awesome. We'll get to social media in a second here, like why you've got such a ginormous social media following is because it's relevant, right? Like people want to know about Little Rock. They want to know for me about like, why would I consider investing in Memphis or whatever, right? So let me watch this video from this awesome dude that's going to go in like in, in a couple of minutes, show me about real estate investing in Memphis. That sounds really interesting. Yes, I'm in, I'll watch, right? So maybe that's what that turns into. You dropped the hint out there. So tell me the interesting story about the two duplexes in Ewing before we move on. Yeah, so that was November, 2019. And now let's fast forward to like February 20. Immediately after that first deal, I was like, how do I get another one? But I just spent all my 30K on that. (laughs) And my dad and my brother last second decided to partner with me, even though the whole time they were like, oh, this is too risky, whatever. 10 days before I closed, I switched from an FHA to a conventional and they ended up partnering with me. So now- Your father that's come all the way way around, now your father's your business partner. Exactly. Who was like, you know, how dare you quit your job in software engineering? And now he's like, hey, Antonio, tell me more about this. Exactly. Sometimes it takes someone to like push the barrier for other people to see that, hey, this is what we really should be doing. So I- I was like, I don't know where to get the money. So I read the book, Raising Private Capital. And in that book, <laughs> you talked about taking having people take out HELOCs or cash out refinances. And in the back of my head, I was like, holy crap, my dad owns his house free and clear. And this thing's got to be worth you know, something decent. Let me see if I can convince him. My dad hates debt. He absolutely despises debt. Mm-hmm. I was like, so I proposed something to him. I said, look, I have a high paying job. Let me co-sign on the loan with you because he does not show much income from his business. So I said, let's co-sign on a loan. We'll do 300K. We'll take the money out. I'll buy a few properties with it. We'll fix them up, rent them out. And then in a year later, I'll give you the money back. Okay. Mm -hmm. So we, I I convinced him to against my mom's will. I just had to talk to him (laughs) on the side. 
and we signed the mortgage. I put offers in on a few duplexes in March 2020. But at that point in time, the market was pretty hot until COVID hit. So I put lowball offers on these two duplexes, one in Hamilton, one up the street on Greenland in in Ewing. So it was right next to the prospect property. And my offers were like 140 and 135. And the going offers were like 180 or something. So I wasn't getting them accepted. So COVID hit and I get a call from my real estate agent and my agent says, everyone backed out. If you want, they're willing to take your offers as backups. And at, at the time, I remember I'm looking at the TV and the TV's talking about how the stock market just went down 30, 40%. And yeah. I'm not going to lie. I was like, this is my dad's money on his house. Like, I don't want to lose money. That's for sure. But the only phrase that kept coming in my head was the time when everyone else is scared is the time when you need to buy. So, or it's like blood in the streets or. It's you know, Warren Buffett. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm going to butcher it. So you're, you're seeing things go one way. So it's kind of run the other way, right? Yeah. So go for it. That's what made yeah. me feel confident. So I, I got these properties at 135 and 140. And, you know, today the 135 one is probably worth 240. Yep. And the other one is worth it appraised in t- June of 2020, May of 2021 for 215. So it's probably at least 245, 250 by now. So those were the best deals I've done because I got them on market below value at the time. And then COVID happened, which was just pure luck that they appreciated significantly and rents appreciated significantly in those areas. So they were cash flowing when I bought them and now they cash flow even more. And I came in with none of my own money. It was using my dad's money from his mortgage that all I had to do was say, Hey, I'll co-sign. And Love that. Fast, fast forward a year later, when it came time to refinance, my dad actually had COVID. He's a contractor. He has arthritis in his entire body, but COVID hit him so bad that like he couldn't walk. So mm. I called them and I was like, look, it's time for us to refinance. We can either refinance and pay off that house and you can have a house clear, free and clear again, or we can refinance these properties and keep going. And I think it was the fact that he was like, crap, I'm 60. I'm not going to be able to do this for forever. We need to figure this out. And I'm currently not capable of working. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's do it again against my mom's will. So that's basically what I'm yeah, doing yeah. is I'm building my dad's retirement account and then my mom's and then I'm trying to build wealth for my family long-term. So I did the same thing for mine, uh, brother, just That's so you awesome. know, like I, you and I have very similar paths and that like investing in the same playground. I was, I was just a couple blocks away from you. Yeah. I'm curious how far away my properties on Concord were. And I flipped, I probably flipped about four dozen houses, a few on prospect and Parkside are the two like main thoroughfares of viewing in that. So yeah. I did a, a bunch of deals on those over the years. Right. But uh, I also, one of my initial seed capital in my business years ago, where my mom and dad's home, it was paid off. And they would run around. It was like a badge of honor. We paid our house off free and clear, you know, and I talk about that in raising private capital on someone's actually created the most phenomenal bank account that most Americans don't touch. I don't even know this, but 30% of America, 30% has their, has their primary residence paid off free and clear. It's almost all like a lot of baby boomers that just love Dave Ramsey and that kind of stuff. Those guys have all paid their house off free and clear, but nobody's taught them that that is the best bank account they could unlock. And perhaps put their money into hard money loans. You know, like your dad could take his HELOC that he's got and put it on the street at 12, 13, 14% and make phenomenal cash flow for himself. I've coached a few boomers on how to do that. And also just take that money and put it to work in our deals so you and I can do this. I came into it doing burr deals with a line of credit on my mom and dad's house. You know, mm-hmm. and that, that was our seed capital that we got started very early in the game. So, so I get it, man. That's, that's yeah. really, that's really great. So let, as we're winding down here, I want to just talk, we talked in the beginning of the show about how to really, really boost social media presence. And before we get into your social tips, give us the stats, your, your IG, TikTok, followers on all your social channels for credentials. Yeah. On YouTube, I have 7,300 subscribers. Awesome. Uh, Facebook, I have 32,000. Instagram, I have 188,000. And then TikTok, I have 649,000. 
You have 188,000 on, on IG. Yeah, 188,000 on it. So for those that want to leverage as you have social media to build your brand, make people aware of what you do, perhaps raise capital and whatnot through social media, give us a few tips on how people can do that. So before I was doing real estate content, I was just talking about whatever the hell I was learning. So whether it was my first video was literally me taking 10X Rules by Grant Cardone and just talking about what I learned inside the book. Now, no one watched me for those first like four years because <laughs> I, I didn't really have a niche. So when I started learning about real estate, I kept having the same problem. I don't know where to start. It feels overwhelming. It feels scared. And I would go to bigger pockets every day and see other people ask the same question. And I was like, holy crap, if I can figure this out, then I can help all these people doing it because clearly it's a large problem that other people need. Real estate feels overwhelming for someone in their 20s. They don't want to lose all their money. So I just started talking about the thing that I was doing. Yeah while I knew that there was a problem that a lot of people needed. So it was unique to me, the problem. Well, clearly not because other people, you know, do it, but I felt I was uniquely uh, positioned to solve the problem. So, and then in every single video, I tried to make the information as clear, as actionable and as easy to understand as possible. That's a, that's an, that's another thing that I feel like separates me from a lot of, a lot of the uh, like real estate gurus, you could say are kind of just talking about how much money they made, but not actually showing the things that they did to make the money. Like I analyze X properties, or this is how you analyze properties. This is how you analyze a market, that kind of thing. So actually showing the how, I think that's mm -hmm. really important. And then a lot of what I did when I started doing well was I studied every single piece of every single person's content that did well. So I would go to like my friends, Sharon and Sean, they weren't my friends at the time, but I would watch, I would look at Sharon's profile and I would see each post and I would say, okay, that one had 3,000 views. This one had 4,000 views. That one had 50,000 views. Let me click on that one and see what they said, what was being shown on screen. Did they use a sound? I was breaking it down like an engineer would. And I have a whole spreadsheet with every single video. And so th that helped build like a similar to an AI model, a model in my brain of what works, what doesn't work. And I tried to use that as a, a jumping point now to then make content down the line. So moving forward to that, those are some great tips. Thank you. I want to leave it with this because you've told me about some, like a really interesting concept that you're working on for your next initiative about this whole thing with, you know, renos to house hacks and everything like that. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Like what your next mountain that you're climbing is? Yeah. So starting a company where I'm buying small multifamily homes, fixing them up, renting them out and mm -hmm. selling them to people who want to start house hacking. It's mm -hmm. going to be called house hack helpers. And the goal is to help people get started by house hacking a property. Because I think right now, especially in a high interest rate environment, house hacking is going to be one of the best ways to get started. Because as rates, as cost of living has gone up everywhere, to keep your cost of living low, house hacking is a great way to do that, which allows you to save, which allows you to put more money to the side for your next property as well. So you get some experience while doing that. I love that. Love yeah. that. I think that you're, uh, I think you're really onto something. I think a lot of people are going to be using house hacking as a vehicle. House hacking is actually a great way to make interest rates not matter, right? Because if I'm living in the property and I've got tenants that are paying me for their living space, whether that's for a multi or them living as, as my buddy Craig Krulop did, the author for Bigger Pockets about house hack, where he would like, you know, live in one side of a bedroom and have a curtain going on with somebody else on the other side, right? The compliment I have for, for that is, and I got started in house hacking as well in a three bedroom, two bath where I lived in one bedroom by myself and two other rooms uh, rented out to two buddies of mine. House hacking is a phenomenal entry point. Like I said, it doesn't matter what the rate is. If I'm buying a house hack and my tenants are paying all of or most of my debt, my living expenses are still a good bit less overall, even if it's an 8% rate or a 4% rate.
Yeah, exactly. I'm helping a few friends right now that they're trying, they live in Jersey City, they spend 4200 on a one bed apartment in Jersey City, but they're looking at duplexes where while they live in the property, their cost will be like 2000. So they're really saving $2,200 a month, which at the end of the year is a down payment for a property out of state or a new house act. So mm -hmm. it's a, it's a great, great yeah. scenario. And in a few years, then that property will hopefully cash flow as well. Yeah. And, and one last tip, you could consider doing seller financing. And what's interesting about that is if it was all your money or investors money, if it were that scenario, and this is not a solicitation, we're just saying if, right? So if it were that, what you could do is you could sell on the back end to a buyer and give them an effective interest rate of say four or 5%, right? Mm -hmm. Still require them lay 20, 30, 40% down, or maybe 20% down, right? 25% down to get into the property. And then you hold paper on the rest their effective rate is four to five percent but your but your cost of capital is much less than that because of whatever profit you baked into the fix and flip and everything like that so the investors could be making seven or eight percent cash on cash in what their actual dollar exposure was getting into the property right mm, i didn't um, think about that yeah yeah well there you go yeah it's uh, that's adding value there you go <laughs> uh, so I see you got your Instagram there, but for people that are watching or listening here on the podcast, how can people keep in touch with you? How can people follow up with you to hear more about what you're up to these days? Yeah, you can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, Facebook at InvestStarters, I-N-V-E-S-T-A-R-T-E-R-S. Or you can follow us at House Hack Helper because someone took House Hack Helpers a few days before I was able to. <laughs> so, uh, literally, like it was free and I decided on everything and then it's gone. Antonio, awesome conversation. Love to have you back on once you get one of those deals going. Love to hear more about those, that House Hack Bridge project that you're working on. I really love to hear more about that. And yeah. thank you for joining us in the Cashflow Digest. Thanks for having me, Matt. It was good, good hanging out. All right, see you. Great conversation. Just to recap, what I heard there from Antonio is that there's awesome ways to add value in whatever ways that you see fit. And, and you got you got to keep talking to people about what you do. If you, Antonio talked to his brother and his dad about real estate investing, they're kind of throwing shade at him originally, but then they came in and joined him as investors uh, later in his career. Also, just make sure that you broadcast your day to day. You don't have to have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of units of multifamily or real estate before you start broadcasting your journey. You're actually maybe more relatable if you've just got a few units. So anybody that's just getting going into this space or doesn't think that they've got enough to say, I challenge you on that. People that are going to be watching your feed are going to be just like you, people that are facing the same challenges that you are. So put your real journey in real estate investing out there on social now, and people will find it more relatable. And you could end up like Antonio with lots and lots, hundreds of thousands of people watching them on social. Guys, going to transition over to our video for the day, over to an asset management tip. Asset management is the unsung hero of real estate investing. It is what will make you millions in real estate investing long-term is effective asset management. So let's hear from our friend, Tara Smiley, T-Talks Investing with, with her asset management tips for the day. Hey everybody, it's Tara Smiley with DeRosa Group and T-Talks Multifamily. So today we're gonna to talk about three small shifts in how you conceptualize the concept of property ownership and who your client is and how that macro level impact can be made by three small changes, okay? So the first concept that we're gonna talk about is if you own a property, apartments, commercial building, a dwelling, a plot of land, you are in theory a landlord by definition, you are a lord of your own little empire, however big or small that happens to be. But that word has a connotation of power and by association, a negative presumption. So my first challenge for you is to change your identity. Get rid of the landlord. Think of yourself as a property owner, an asset owner. Even better yet, if you're in multifamily, consider yourself to be a housing provider. Number two, this thing that you own, it's an asset, right? And it's really easy to think about that in just a streaming column of profits and losses and probabilities and projections. But whether your asset, this thing that you own, especially multifamily, is two units, 20 units, 200 units, 
This thing that you own is two homes, 20 homes, 200 homes. So we talk a lot in the industry about it being a property, a complex, an asset. You own a community. So recognize the amazing importance of this thing that you own and what it provides to what's going to be our number three shift in semantics. Landlords have tenants. And anybody that knows me knows that the word tenants, it, it makes me a little shifty and itchy. I hate it. I don't have tenants. I have residents. Those are the people who signed on the dotted line this contractual agreement that they will pay a designated sum of money for this home that you provide and promise to maintain. It's an agreement. It is a business arrangement. But when you take all three of those little shifts in semantics and language and thought process, you're not a landlord, you're a housing provider. This thing that you own isn't just an asset. It's a home or a series of homes in a community. And you're providing it to this group of people who are your residents. You are changing your focus and the mentality with which you approach this business. Landlords approach it as a true business and just a business. Housing providers, residential managers, communities create a network. All right, you are building a network, whether two units, 20 units, 200 units. You're building a neighborhood within the market neighborhood. You're working with local agencies, groups, getting resident referrals, which is the best marketing there is. This little shift, that's my challenge to you. If you can change the words that you use, it will change the attitude with which you speak of these things. When you switch your attitude, see if it doesn't positively impact your performance and impact your resident retention and impacting your marketability to gather new residents. So there's my challenge. Gauntlet has been thrown. I'm curious to see what other kind of creative words everybody has for these three categories and what your thoughts are. Talk to you soon. That's Justin Fraser on the guitar there. Really not. But anyway, great conversation with Tara. Tara's actually been able to correct me in a lot of the lingo that I use around real estate investing and what we do. It's certainly not a landlord because it's just not a positive connotation for anybody in there. Housing provider sounds amazing. Resident sounds great. And I love that insight as well. Thank you. Guys, great conversation today. Here's my recap on the whole thing, okay? The real estate brokerage, real estate commission world is changing on the residential side. The National Association of Realtors have been trying to buck that change for a very, very long time. I don't think they're be able to do it anymore. The NAR is not going away. The realtor, realtor connotation, realtor stamp is certainly not going to go away. I just think it's going to change, right? And it's about time. I think that that's an exciting conversation. So love to hear what you guys think about that. Great conversation with Antonio, Antonio Cuccinello and his ventures in driving around the world, around the US anyway, and posting videos and getting started in real estate investing by convincing his family and getting throwing shade at him about what he's doing, but really getting them involved in the in later facets of life. Tara, always with T-Talks Multifamily, teaching us really the right lingo that's really more of a win-win language and treating tenants as if they're human beings instead of just a number a statistic. Guys, that's what we got for the Cashflow Digest today. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. If you guys are listening to this program on Spotify, please take a minute right now and give it a positive review. Thank you guys. And if you guys are watching live on uh, this channel, have a phenomenal weekend. See you guys next week. Hey guys, Matt Faircloth here. Thank you for listening again to the Cashflow Digest. I really appreciate you guys doing that. If you guys want to hear more about what DeRosa Group has to offer, go to DeRosa Group, D-E-R-O-S-A group.com, DeRosa Group.com online. You can hear about all the great things that we offer from an educational standpoint and passive investment standpoint on our website. See you there. And if you guys want to join our online community, DeRosa Insiders on Facebook, where you can watch this program get recorded every Friday at noon Eastern, and you can come on as even a guest or ask questions on the show. We hope to see you guys on our online community, DeRosa Insiders. See you there.